and welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, guys. Hey. We just did like some very elaborate like thumb motions. Yes. Very. Um, as if we were on the stage. Yeah. Very Supremes. So maybe we should take this on the road. Who? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where instead of singing, we just make hand gestures. Um. So, I don't know if you heard the news, Julia. She says accusatorily. <laughs> but uh, there was a big, there was some, there was some science news. There mm-hmm. was some NASA news. Mm-hmm. And apparently there, it blew up that Scott Kelly, the astronaut who was astronaut up. Astronaut Scott Kelly. Astronaut Scott Kelly, who was up on the ISS mm-hmm. for a full year. He came back and they studied his DNA against his brother, Mark. And, uh... People were like, his DNA is different. It's Ah, 7% different. Oh, my God. The moon. (laughs) The moon. It changed him. (laughs) This is just like that uh, Johnny Depp movie with Charlize Theron, uh, the astronaut or like Moon Man or something. Oh, He gets like infected with with, like an alien. (gasps) And then he comes back and And his his wife is like, oh, it's called the astronaut's wife. Okay. (laughs) Great. Yeah. And she's like, something's wrong. And everyone's like, no, it's fine. And it's not good. She's oh, and then she gets pregnant so with the alien baby. No. I didn't even see the movie. That's and I know my so nightmare. much about it. I know. <laughs> or a nightmare. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's just just a, a generalized nightmare yeah. that no one wants. Yeah. Um, but as it turns out. Astronaut it, Scott Kelly. Astronaut Scott Kelly is. And so people were like, they're no longer twins. Because <gasps> twins have identical DNA. Mm. But as it turns out. They are still twins. His DNA is the same. They were like his DNA. The The report was his DNA was like fundamentally changed. Yeah. But in fact, it was his genes that were changed. Mm. His genetic like um, activity yes. was changed because of just normal stuff. Like your genetic activity changes when you like go hiking because yeah. your body is using different processes and things. And so your genes are reacting to stress or whatever. But your DNA is still the same. But your DNA yeah. is still the same. So... There was a correction, and actually, Live Science <laughs> published a, a a retraction, basically that just says we were totally wrong about that Scott <laughs> Kelly G- space gene story. So, but it got me thinking. Mm-hmm. It got me the the old rolling up the old the old gears, yeah. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do another dads in space. I'm going to do it, but in this time, okay, mm-hmm. because I feel like I've been focusing a lot about dads, yeah. But this time, we're going to be talking about the Voyager program, Ooh. and there were a lot of ladies working on it. Heck yeah. So we're going to call this Moms in Space, the Voyager program. This is exciting. All so right. this, uh, I'm going to, at the top of the show, I'm going to say, I got a lot of my information from classicnasa.gov. Mm. They have a lot of really good information. Also, a documentary that is currently on Netflix done by PBS. It's called The Farthest Voyager in Space. Mm. It is fantastic. And I'll talk about it pretty frequently throughout this because that's where I got a lot of my information mm-hmm. because they interview a lot of the people oh, who cool. worked on the Voyager program. So <clears throat> to start, Julia... Every 175 years, the planets in our solar system align in such a way to make the furthest reaches of our known space a reality. This is the story of the NASA engineers who made the impossible possible. Yeah. So, 
Goosebumps. I know. You should be getting goosebumps. Uh, so a program entitled The Grand Tour was playing in the 1960s and 70s to take advantage of this planetary alignment in order to see the outer planets and moons of the solar system. So if you can imagine our solar system, you got the sun in the middle mm-hmm. and all of the planets are rotating around it. The sun in the middle. The sun in the middle. Yes. <laughs> it's heliocentric. Ooh, yes. Yeah, exactly. So what... It, what happens every 175 years is that the planets line up not like in a line, yeah, but in a way that if we were to launch a spaceship mm-hmm. or a probe from Earth, we could use the gravity and the grot- gravitational Ooh. pull yeah. of each of the planets in succession to slingshot it to the next planet. Yeah, like in the Martian. Like in the Martian, exactly. So this is what the Voyager program did. So they were like, this is going to happen in the late 70s. We got to take advantage of this. Mm-hmm. And um, Gary Flandro, who was an aerospace engineer at Jet Propulsion Laboratories. JPL. JPL. Uh, he was the first to discover this alignment. And so that's when they were like starting to cool. make plans. So um, unfortunately, the cost of the Grand Tour was in excess of a billion dollars. <laughs> so they couldn't find the, huh. the money to do all of the planets. They wanted to do... Um, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. They wanted to do all of them, but it was difficult because it was going to cost so much money, especially with the technology that they had at the time. So um, apparently the NASA administrator came to Richard Nixon and and he said, the last time the planets were aligned like that, Thomas Jefferson was sitting at your desk and he blew it. And (laughs) And Nixon thought that was funny and he was like, all right, but you can just do two. You can just do two planets, Jupiter and Saturn. So the Voyager team was like, great, we'll do Jupiter and Saturn. Is it because Richard Nixon didn't want to have to say Uranus on TV? <laughs> Probably. He was kind of a prude. I mean, as much of a crook as he was, he was like kind of buttoned up. Um, speaking of someone who like ate Milky Ways every day for breakfast, but that's a, that's a different episode of our podcast. So the Voyager team, although had a secret goal, right? Okay. They wanted to go farther. So they were like, it's going to take a really long time to get out there Mm -hmm. just in general. So let's, let's also like work on getting to Uranus and Neptune. Okay. So that was their secret. So, um, they decided to send two probes and, uh, the Voyager program had Voyager one and Voyager two. Okay. So the Voyager program is two probes and they're still out there. Yeah, it's really cool. So first, we're going to talk a little bit about the golden record. Mm-hmm. So the golden record um, was kind of thought up by a team uh, led by Carl Sagan. He was also on the imaging team for the Voyager program as well. The budget for the golden record was $25,000. It's pretty good. Yeah. Um, so the, the idea of the golden record was it was like a phonograph record with a, it was packed with a stylus and like mm-hmm. a way to play it and that kind of thing. And it was basically like a message in a bottle that was put one on each of the Voyager probes mm-hmm. that if alien life was out there, it would tell the story of the human race and earth as a planet. So cool. I know it's so cool. And there's, and they said something like, there's no science in it. Mm-hmm. There's, it's just, if there's somebody out there, we're going to give them tell them about tell them the about humans us. of earth exactly so um pioneer the pioneer probe mm-hmm. years earlier had also had a plaque 
it was just a plaque that was just a line drawing of like a human male and a human female and like a couple of other drawings about like what the earth looks like from a distance and that kind of thing. And that was designed by um, Carl Sagan's wife at the time because she was an artist. Isn't that so crazy to think about that? It's like, how do we how do we distill this into yeah. like a you know three foot by three foot drawing that yeah. anything with eyes and a brain could understand exactly and the idea that like we don't if there's anything out there we don't know how they take in information mm-hmm. we don't know if they have eyes or a brain or if they're like <laughs> so far advanced that these are like children's yeah. drawings to them kind of thing like how do you describe how do you describe like the air how do you describe a bird you know like that kind of thing mm-hmm. to something that would not have any concept of that it's like completely alien so it's just really cool um they the records contain sounds and images selected to portray the diversity of life and culture on earth and are intended for any intelligent extraterrestrial life form or future humans who may find them um so there are kind of time capsule as i had mentioned before so it was recorded at half speed and so that Ooh. provided two hours of content. Okay. So one hour for sounds of earth and one hour of music. And there's also images. There's mm-hmm. data on the golden record of images. Um, so also the location of earth, uh, it was on the cover of it in relation to the solar system engraved on the cover. And when I first watched this documentary with Steve, the first thing I said was, why would you do that? Why would you put, <laughs> why like, did you tell them? we are here, come <laughs> find and eat us. You know, I was like, that's so stupid. Why would you do something like that? But I'm, I'm a huge baby. So the records are constructed of gold-plated copper and um, is 12 inches in diameter. And the record's cover is aluminum and electroplated. Upon it is an ultra-pure sample of the isotope uranium-238, which has a half-life of 4.468 billion years. So this thing is going to last, I mean, forever. Yeah. For all intents and purposes. It is possible via mass spectrometry that a civilization that encounters the record will be able to use the ratio of remaining uranium to the other elements to determine the age of the record. So they oh thought gosh. of everything. Mm-hmm. So they made eight in total. Okay. Um, two for each of the Voyagers. And um, there's a couple, there's like one in the airport in Dulles. And like, <laughs> there's a couple of, they're out there uh-huh. in museums or collections and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I think NASA has one and JPL has sure. one. So, um, the contents were selected for NASA by a committee and it only took them, they only had six weeks to make them. That's it. (laughs) Wow. Uh, So they had to, by committee, choose everything we want to say to aliens. Wow. (laughs) Or future humans. You have 60 minutes. Yep. Go. Um, So Carl Sagan taught at Cornell. He lived in Cornell. So, um, he headed the committee and the selection of content for the record, uh, took, um, almost a year so the the content selected took almost a year but they only had six weeks to actually like acquire the music and acquire the sounds and record the sounds and that kind of thing like you couldn't just google it back then so uh sagan and his associates assembled 115 images of people plants and animals and a variety of natural sounds such as those made by surf wind thunder and animals including the songs of birds and whales uh to this they added musical selections (laughs) Yes. Is that a whale? That's whale. You're doing? Oh, it's great. <laughs> Good. Okay, great. Uh, <laughs> they added musical selections from different cultures and eras, spoken greetings in 55 ancient and modern languages, other human sounds like footsteps and laughter. And it was actually Carl Sagan's laugh that oh, they recorded. Wow. 
and printed messages from U.S. President Jimmy Carter and U.N. Secretary General Kurt Waldheim. Uh, the record also includes the inspirational message Per Aspera ad Astra uh, in Morse code, which is Latin for through difficulties to the stars. Isn't wow. that lovely? Um, it also includes diagram of the solar system and its planets, DNA, human anatomy, and reproduction. And the golden record also carries an hour-long recording of the brainwaves of Anne Druyan, who was um, Carl Sagan's third wife, third and final wife. Wow. Um, and during the recording of the brainwaves, Druyan thought of many topics, including Earth's history, civilization, and the problems they face, and what it was like to fall in love That's with so Carl weird. Sagan. Isn't that weird? So it's kind of, there's actually a drunk history about this. Okay. And they cut out the part yeah. that, like, Carl Sagan was actually married at the time that Andrean and here he were, like, getting together. Uh-huh. But it's a very beautiful, like, touching story about how these two people were in love. And they recorded her brainwaves of, like, how they were falling in love. And that is now part of, like, the golden record that's out there in the universe. Wow. And it's really, it's very beautiful. Um, so uh, NASA got some got some flack Mm. because there was nudity on the pioneer plaque and people were writing letters that were like, they were sending smut to space. Like there's (laughs) penises and vaginas on our space, (laughs) on our space probes. How dare you? So on the drawing on the outside of the golden record, it was a lot more modest. Okay. We've got some fig leaves up in there. Yeah. There's, it's very like Ken doll. Okay. But on the images on the golden record, on the data Mm -hmm. there, it's more accurate. Okay. So they managed to get that done. <laughs> so um, the probes themselves. So in 1972, prep got underway. So again, two spacecrafts with a golden record on each, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. So the documentary is, I swear to God, it's so fabulous. I know I talk, I, I talk a lot about how great some things are, and I feel like I'm too <laughs> effusive about a lot of stuff. But honest to God, as much as I fear space, mm-hmm. and as much as I had several panic attacks during this <laughs> documentary, which we will get into later, it's beautiful. Like They have a lot of really good, seamless... Um, animation mm-hmm. of the Voyager okay. and how it was launched and all of this stuff, as well as like all the images that they saw and a lot of uh, footage from the time period and like press conferences and things and interviews with the people who worked on the Voyager program who are like wonderful, intelligent, like really thoughtful, poetic people who were like get really emotional about it. And the entire time we're watching the documentary, Steve's crying next to me and I'm like, <laughs> having a panic attack because the some of the images I was like oh it's so dark and vast and cold <laughs> but <clears throat> at one point Rich Terrell who is um one of the people who worked on the imaging science he said in 1972 the biggest computers in the world were equivalent to what we have in our pockets today mm-hmm. and I'm not talking about a cell phone and he reaches in his, cell, his pocket and he goes I'm talking about a key fob oh wow. which I was like <laughs> I think when I was watching that I went shit are you kidding me <laughs> So like they, and he said, you know, I'm not, I'm not apologizing for the fact that we had limitations, but I'm also not saying that we didn't, we didn't push that technology to the farthest reaches that we possibly could. We took advantage of it. So Voyager was basically the size of a small school bus um, with all the arms and stuff (laughs) taken into consideration. It's not a big, big thing. And when it was launched, it was all folded up like origami so that none of the extraneous pieces would like break off or anything. So this is good trivia. Voyager 1 was sent second. 
Okay. Um, but it was on a faster trajectory. So it always got mm. to the planets before Voyager 2. Interesting. So Voyager 2 was launched first and Voyager 1 was launched second. And in the documentary, the, the people who worked on it were like, oh my gosh, this was so confusing to the press. <laughs> they were like, what, why you call it 2? Like it was just ridiculous. So mm-hmm. um, they also interviewed Jim Bell, who is the author of The Interstellar Age, which is also a book about this whole okay. process. And that, I mean, he's great. You know, definitely a writer, like had Mm -hmm. great turns of phrase and things and just very enthusiastic about this. So I'm going to talk a couple of a little bit about the ladies who worked on this program. We've got Carolyn Porco. She worked in imaging science. Fran Baganall. She was the co-investigator at Plasma Science and actually um, did a lot of the she kind of headed up the the investigation of uh, Neptune, which I'll talk about. Plasma science. Plasma science, yeah. She talked a lot about like the magnetic fields and things like that about the, around the the planet. So, and then uh, Linda Spilker, she was the infrared science representative, and Candy Hansen Koharchek, she was also an imaging science rep. Um, and uh, they also talked to Heidi Hamill. She uh, was planetary science, and she had a great um, kind of metaphor or. Uh, like a visual aid where she said, you know, if you, if you take a soda straw and you look up into the night sky and through that tiny hole that you're looking at, there are thousands of galaxies with billions of stars. And she was like, if that's like thousands of galaxies and billions of stars just in that straw hole, and you think of just the entire night sky and that that's only like half of the sky that you're seeing, because I mean, obviously you have like a 360 of the, oh around gosh. the entire world. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> freaking out um and then uh linda morabito she was a mission navigator she was kind of looking at the images and kind of telling the cameras what to do cool and there's a good story about her in a little bit but so um first the first leg of voyager was 400 million miles to jupiter 400 million miles 400 million miles uh, Voyager 1 got there in 1979 and Voyager 2 was four months behind it. So um, in the documentary, they showed the images taken of the approach. Mm-hmm. So it's coming like the little probe is coming toward Jupiter. And so they put the images together like a flip book. So it's oh, like, wow. And this planet in granted black and white, but still in very high detail. And there's a reason why they took the images in black and white. Black and white has a higher resolution and there are no color detectors on the cameras. Okay. And they still do that. They still don't fly color detectors. Mm-hmm. So when they want color images, they take the image through different filters and then later make color images of them. to Because, you know, l- green light obviously reflects differently. Mm-hmm. Like the if you put filters on a black and white image with that kind of resolution, you can yeah. get color out of it. Oh, cool. And it's true. It's not like a colored image. Yeah. Um, but even if it's black and white, I was losing my mind. It was just like rising up in front of you, just like zooming in so tight. And I, I my, my tiny brain could not take it. I was like, I, how, can't, I can't do this. How long did it take the probes to, from Earth to get there? It was, um, it was two years, okay. it looks like. Just about two years. Um, and Jupiter is 10 times the diameter of earth. It has no solids and it is mostly hydrogen and helium. So, uh, 
they they get there and everyone's like mm. holy shit jupiter they're like losing their minds so they they wanted to check out jupiter they saw the big red spot they saw that it was all like storms on the surface and you could really see a lot of the details of the of the storms on the surface and things and they were just like the images were coming in and they were they were like glued to the monitors and all the data and stuff they're just all in this room and they also wanted to check out Jupiter's moons on the flyby because it wasn't like the probe like came up and like hung out yeah snap 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 it was actually like Traveling. Like traveling around the orbit of it and then using that to slingshot itself yeah. to Saturn. So they didn't have a ton of time, I guess. Uh, so they wanted to check out the moons on the flyby. So everyone figured they would be just battered ice balls. And Callisto, one of the moons, definitely was a battered ice ball. Not a lot going on. Uh, Ganymede had impact craters all over and it was dormant as well. It was just mm-hmm. an ice ball. So they were like, well, let's go to the inner moons because it's probably better protected because it's closer yeah. to the planet. And they were right. So Europa had a smooth, icy surface with what looked like cracks all over it and ice plates that moved relative to each other when they were taking the pictures, which means that there was a thick ocean of salty water underneath. What? Yeah, it's really cool. So now we're going to talk about Linda Morabito. So Io, the the moon Io, was the best. So Linda was in the office. She was alone. And... Everyone else had left because these were images that they had already been seeing. Yeah. And they were like, Linda, you take yeah, care of the rest of this. Yeah, one moon of Jupiter. You've seen them all. Sure, all right. I'm going to go home and take a nap. So she was like looking at it and she told the camera to like, look back, like just look over your shoulder and like take a look. And she said she saw something strange and it was like an enormous object, like emerging from mm-hmm. behind Io. And she thought it was like a satellite or like another moon, like a tiny mm-hmm. moon of Io, which was a moon. And she thought, realized that she had seen something that had never been physically seen before. It was a plume rising from the surface and she realized it was volcanic activity. And she saw the very first evidence of volcanic activity on a world beyond earth. Wow. It, I was like, this is the coolest thing. So IO has 10 times the volcanic activity of earth. Wow. And these volcanoes on Io launch material like 200 miles up into (laughs) space. So Io is just like a volcanic moon, which is like so friggin' cool. You would think it would tire itself out, right? (laughs) Did not, does not. Um, So whenever these images would come in, no one at JPL got any sleep because (laughs) images were coming in every 48 seconds. Yeah. So people were sleeping in their cars. People were sleeping in their offices. Like no one wanted to get up and go to the bathroom because they were afraid they would miss something. It was crazy. So then after that happens, oh, so Candy, Candy Hanson Kaharchek. So Candy was part of the the imaging team as Mm -hmm. well. And the engineer in charge of the camera came into her her cubicle one day and was like, Candy, what did you do to the camera? (laughs) And she looked and she was like, Oh my God, it's Jupiter's ring. And it was the first picture ever of Jupiter's ring. He thought it was like streaks from the imaging. And she, and what did you do? Yeah. He was like, what did you do? Of course. The first thing I know, right. Blame the woman. Right. But there, they had no idea that Jupiter had a ring and that's how they found the ring of Jupiter. Isn't that cool? So after this, we're like, we are pumped for Saturn. Like, this is going to be awesome. Bring us Saturn. <laughs> but alas, it took over a year to get there. Mm-hmm. 
so really it only took like three years to get from Earth to Saturn then? It was like two years to get to Jupiter. Yeah, it launched in 1977. It took two years to get to Jupiter. So what they did was they used the... Mm -hmm. They used Mars in that Mm -hmm. um, specific instance to like get that. See, yeah. I mean, like that seems faster than I thought it would. Right? Well, if they didn't use the the gravity assist, Uh it would have taken them... 10 years. Wow. Okay. And it would have taken them like 35 to 40 so that's years to why get it out. So so important to exactly. get in this alignment. Okay. That's really mm-hmm. cool. And at the time, they wouldn't have been able to build anything that would have lasted that mm-hmm. long with enough, um, even with solar cells and that kind of thing, yeah. would not have had the energy or the fuel to yeah. get out that far. So even if Thomas Jefferson had any idea that this <laughs> was a possibility, yeah. they would they wouldn't have been able, to do, been able to do anything about it. it. So this was like prime time. <laughs> so over a year to get to Saturn. So um, they get to Saturn. And again, every time they, they do a different planet in the documentary, there's the images like mm-hmm. coming towards you. And every time I watched it again so I could oh, do man. notes. Yeah. And every time I was like, <sighs> I was like <sighs> yeah, because it's so dark out there. It is so dark and vast and cold. So the so like the lighting then on the pictures is that being uh, cast from the sun? Yes. Okay. So the light is from the sun, and I'll talk a little bit later about when they get farther out. The mm-hmm. light of the sun is much okay. fainter, mm-hmm. and so they had to do some some mm. like last minute changes to really get good images of wow. Uranus and Neptune. So, um. So Saturn's rings are billions of icy particles that are huge, some as big as a house, and they are some are as much wider than many Earths strung together. Wow. But they're only a kilometer thick. Jeez. So they're like thin, broad sheets of icy particles that are spinning around Saturn. Um, so they checked out Saturn, and they are also like, let's check out some moons. So they checked out Titan. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the idea was both Voyagers were supposed to go to Saturn mm-hmm. and they really wanted to go to Titan mm-hmm. because many there, the main theory was that Titan is like an early version of earth. Wow. That was the theory. So they thought it was like the starting conditions for life. So they really wanted to, to look at Titan in a major way for that theory to kind mm-hmm. of, to continue that thought process. So, but if, if they both went to Titan, they wouldn't be able to catch the trajectory of Saturn to go on okay. to Uranus, right? Uranus, yes. My very educated mother just served us nine. Yes. Parentheses pizzas, because I learned that when Pluto was still a planet. And you know what? They were going to go to Pluto, but then Pluto was no longer a planet. So they were like, eh. They were like, no, nah, we're not doing Pluto. Forget it. Well, Pluto is also very far away. <laughs> So they were like, eh, it's not a big deal. Um, so the new plan was if Voyager 1 was successful at visiting Titan, then Voyager 2, which was nine months, nine months behind, would be free to, to avoid Titan, go around Saturn, and then head off to Uranus and Neptune. Now, sorry. No, go ahead. Were Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 built exactly the same way? Yes. It's just just how things were launched and when they could catch a, you know, yeah. a slingshot type move. That's exactly. how it, the difference happened. Yeah, okay. they were identical. Um, so the, but 
if Voyager 1 wasn't successful, they had to send Voyager 2 to right. Titan okay. because that was the main thing. And then they would miss two other worlds. Mm-hmm. So that was like, there was a lot of pressure. Um, yeah. So Voyager had to be in a certain place to see Titan and then would have missed the, the trajectory. Wow. And sometimes we freak out when we don't get an email sent on time. <laughs> I know. They had a lot. They were like, we got to get this right. So as it turns out, Titan was a giant ball of brown smog with electric blue hazes above it. Um, so the camera, like the visual camera, couldn't penetrate the haze. Okay. But the radio signal passed through and showed the pressure and temperature on the surface. And it was 300 degrees below zero with liquid methane on the surface. What? Isn't that cool? So when the JPL team was like, we saw Titan. Now we got Voyager 2. We could go to Uranus and Neptune. NASA was like, okay, let's okay. do that. So Voyager 1 headed toward interstellar space, just like went off. And then Voyager 2 went to Uranus and Neptune. So the two travel buddies never saw each other again? Yeah. I know. It's kind of sad. In fact, okay, so one of the guys that they interview, he's definitely like a grandpa. His name's Frank Locatell. He was the project engineer for the mechanical systems. He was the weepiest, cutest grandpa in this documentary. Oh, my gosh. He was so sweet. Um. Yeah, he's Can't great. Watch it. If an old man cries, it just makes me cry. He just gets like a little like. At one point, he says, "You know, when we we were getting ready to launch, and you know, we had worked on this for you know five years and all of this stuff." And he was like, "And realized that this was the last time we were ever going to physically lay eyes on this project that we had poured our heart and soul into." And he was like, "And it's just," he was like, "It's it's very moving." And I was like, oh my "Frank, gosh. you're killing me." <laughs> I know. And they're all actually all of them were very like emotional invested. about they, yeah. they had invested a lot into this and you know this is this is their livelihood and this is stuff that they have been dreaming about their whole lives and then they get to see this and have a mark on to the future mm-hmm. it's just so cool so um voyager one went off into interstellar space which we'll talk about a little bit later So Voyager 2, they're not out of the woods yet because it had to get dangerously close to Saturn's rings in order to get that gravity assist. Around the ice fields. Exactly. So in order to do that, it had to go behind the planet. And they They lost lost contact with it. And they were like, it's okay. It'll pop up on the other side. And then we'll be on our way to Uranus. They're like popping champagne. They're like, it's going to be great. When it popped up on the other side of the planet there were all sorts of errors <gasps> losing it and the images were blank so they're like there's a problem what are we gonna do and they showed footage of them like like they're looking at screens and pointing and writing stuff down and like yelling at each other and like shrugging like i don't know what the hell's going on it's like <laughs> they had to do a press conference they were like the the reporters are like sir sir what happened to the probe is it gone and he was like well we don't know if the probe's gone like we're not sure we're still trying to figure that out we will let you guys know there are people like sleeping in seats i mean they were very concerned about voyager lauren just played the parts of like eight different people <laughs> on a stage production of this thank you with complete with hand gestures thank and you. <laughs> it was very very moving i'm turning this into a one woman show just fyi <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to workshop no, it. A one woman show. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So what happened, what had happened was the scan platform had jammed. So. Okay. The cameras, like the infrared camera and the regular visual camera and all that stuff was on a platform that was um, mechanical. Okay. So it could like 
move around and like turn around and look mm-hmm. like a neck, basically. And what happened was it had jammed and it froze the cameras to the wrong angle. Oh. And so they couldn't get any images. Okay. So they had to work it by fixing it from the ground. Because if they didn't have any cameras, this thing was just a hunk of junk sure. flying through space. Um, so <laughs> essentially what they did was they jiggled the mechanism like a car getting out of the snow. They just like went forward a little bit and then went back and then just kept jiggling it. And then the as soon as they freed it, like the lubricants got into the the gears okay. and it was fine. Just started back up. Yeah, it just was like boop and now we're back, back online. And as soon as they freed it, all of a sudden there's the image of the probe leaving Saturn as well as the shadow of the planet on its rings. Wow. Like it had like turned back and like took a quick look. Because that was part of its job was to, like, as it's passing the planet, it keeps an eye on the planet and, like, turns to look back mm-hmm. um, so that you can get, like, a full view of the planet with light from most angles so you can mm-hmm. see stuff. And the image, and they showed the image in the documentary, and it is freaky cool. deaky. Just loses. I oh, Like, I love it, but I also hate it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, ugh, it's very freaky. So now they're in uncharted territory because they had planned for Jupiter and Saturn. Okay. And they wanted to go to Uranus and Neptune. They're like, well, too bad we can't. The president says we can't do it. Yeah, but now they can, (laughs) which they had sort of planned for, but now it's five years later. Mm -hmm. So it took them five years to get from Saturn to Uranus. Okay. And that's how far it is. It's even farther out. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're, the, distances, the distances are getting farther and farther. Yeah. So it's taking longer and longer to get to the next planet. So they had to wing it from there. They're like, all right, let's do this. How are we going to take pictures of planets that are this far from the sun? So they actually reprogrammed the probe from the ground. They, they like wiped the software at one point and like re-uploaded a whole new what? system. Yeah. And they did that. They were doing that on a regular basis, but especially with the lack of light that far out, they had to do that more and more often. And it basically what they reprogrammed the probe to do was to like leave the shutter open on the camera okay. to like get as much light as humanly possible. Just like normal camera, like photography tricks. And it worked. So this was at the time the most remote planetary encounter ever attempted. So they're like, let's do this. So Uranus is tilted, boop, on its side. So the north and south poles are actually at the equator. It's this beautiful aquamarine color with a ring around it, top to bottom. So the ring is like at what you would think the equator was. So it rolls up and down. Mm -hmm. And then the poles are on the sides, which is crazy. Did they know that before then? Uh, I don't think they did. Mm. They didn't. Um, so apparently, um, there was a challenge with the gravitational assist because uh, again, it's oh, tilted on its side. Oh, because it was sideways. Exactly. <gasps> so Fran Bagenal had to, and uh, excuse me, I misspoke earlier. I said that she was the main person to talk, that they talked to, the press talked to about, um, Neptune, but it was actually Uranus because mm-hmm. of the challenge with the gravitational wow. assist. So she was in charge of like explaining that. Um, and there's footage of her, she, they interview her in the documentary, but there's also footage of her from back in, back in the day. And she's so excited. Like, they're so excited. They just love this so much and they love presenting it to people and things. It's just, it's a great documentary. I can't say enough about it, obviously. Lauren will tweet out a link to it or something. Yeah. In case you didn't write down the title at the beginning of the show. Um, so 
uh, Uranus's pole was near the equator and there was a contortion of the magnetic field. So they had to do some, they had to do some magic, work some magic. So apparently though, Uranus was pretty blah. Okay. And one of the, (laughs) one of the women who was the imaging scientist, I think it was Candy. She said, um, Uranus was holding back its secrets. It just didn't photograph well. And that she said the moons were the stars. Mm. So they first checked out Miranda, one of the moons of Uranus, since she was on the way to Neptune. She was like on the way. Mm-hmm. Um, she looked like a jumbled up mess. She was like ripped to pieces with cliffs and gashes just from like passing asteroids oh. and things. And there's really weak gravity on Miranda. And one of the people that they talked to said the gravity was so weak that these these cliffs were like hundreds of kilometers high. And what you could do is if you jumped off the cliff, you could read a whole newspaper on your way down to the bottom, <laughs> but you would still die because you were going at like a hundred miles an hour by the time you get down there. Oh but the gosh. gravity was so weak that you could, he was like, well, it was like, it'd be the last newspaper you ever read. But, um, so there were intense radiation belts on Uranus. Uh, they detected two new rings. So there were three rings wow. altogether and 10 tiny moons. However, the Challenger disaster happened just as Voyager was leaving Uranus. Oh, and the so day... It's yep. Yeah. And the, it was the day they were planning on doing the final press conference on the Uranus photos. Oh, that timing. Yeah, it was really bad. And one of the, one of the women... Um, I think it was Heidi. She was saying that it was such a weird thing because all the press cleared out because the the Challenger Mm -hmm. disaster. And she said she was sitting in the control room looking at images of like Uranus going away because they were flying Mm -hmm. away from Uranus. And in the TV camera next to those images was the challenge, like the the detritus like coming down. And it was it was a very, very sad day for NASA Mm -hmm. and JPL. So, um, it was weird that that those things were happening around the same yeah. time. Next is Neptune. Neptune yeah. is the last the last stop. Okay, on this grand tour because we cut out Pluto. Yeah, because they were like no Pluto. So Neptune is thirty AU from the Earth. So AU mm-hmm. is astronomical unit. Um, it is one AU is the distance from the Earth to the Sun, or it's ninety three million miles. Yes. So Neptune is. 30, 30 times 30 times 93, 93 million, million yeah. from earth yes um so they had to increase the antennas on earth to capture the weak signal oh, yeah. um so they had to just keep making very large arrays mm-hmm. out west just like to capture because it was just like a very faint like <laughs> so <clears throat> neptune is the ice giant it is a bright blue orb it is evocative of the earth like way out there it looks like the earth so the most surprising thing was the giant dark spot, which is a storm. They call it the great dark spot. And they had never known it was there. They were like, what the hell is this? Mm. Um, they could track the storms on Neptune better wow. than they could track storms on Earth at the time. Whoa. Like they could predict storms on Neptune like 12 weeks in advance, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't track <laughs> They can't the tell me if I'm getting one inch of snow yeah. or 74 inches of exactly. snow. Exactly. So All we need right. to get more JPL people on. <laughs> to work for the National Yeah, Weather, weather Channel. Service. Exactly. <laughs> so um, since there were no more planets to check out, they could take a better look at Neptune's rings and then look back on the solar system in a really unique way. So 
one of uh, the imaging science people were saying that the rings of Neptune have a reflectivity that is twice as dark as soot. Whoa. And they're trying to see them in the light that's falling on them is a thousand times fainter than on the Earth. So they're trying against the pitch black yeah. darkness of space. So it was like nigh impossible, they, but they managed to get it. And it looks like bright white rings. It's beautiful. Wow. They did an incredible job. Um, they did a close flyby of one of Neptune's moons called Triton. Um, and they had to fly over the North Pole of Neptune to get there. And in order to do that, they had to fly very close to the cloud surface to do that. And that was like nerve wracking because if they got pulled into the gravitational yeah. pull of Neptune, which was weak, but still they could crash and then they would mm-hmm. lose the probe and then no more Voyager. So, but because they had to do that, they watched the moon rise of Triton as they were approaching, which is so cool. Um, there was nitrogen ice on the Southern hemisphere of Triton um like it's really weird they show the image of it and it's like smooth on top of the globe part Mm -hmm. and then on the bottom it's like it looks sort of like the craters of the moon but like lots of cracks and things so like this nitrogen ice and um larry soderblom who was one of the imaging scientists he was like they they take a bunch of pictures and put it together in a mosaic Mm -hmm. and he couldn't figure out why the mosaic wasn't like lining up and he was like, these aren't lining up. It's making me nuts. Like these lines don't connect. It doesn't make any sense. Like it's still like a three-dimensional object. We should be able to yeah. put these things together. So he decided to put the images in a stereo viewer, like the red blue. Mm-hmm. And up popped these geysers. <gasps> and the reason why the lines weren't lining up is because it was shooting out. These geysers oh. were like black geysers of like gas plumes extending kilometers from the surface and everybody lost their minds. They were like, holy shit, there's geysers on Triton. (laughs) And it was supposed to be a frozen nothing, just like a rock, cold rock. And in fact, there's all of this like gaseous activity under the surface, which is really cool. So that was the end. It was the last planet to visit. And they decide, they look back on the crescents of Neptune and Triton. And I'll tweet, I'll tweet a bunch of photos because they're really cool, but it's like you see the crescent of Neptune, like just the light, mm-hmm. and then the opposite crescent of Triton. It's oh, wow. so beautiful. So the team had a big party at JPL. Chuck Berry was there because they <laughs> they um, they sent one of his the one songs, of Chuck Berry's right? songs is on the Golden Record. Yeah, there was a big send off for Voyager, and um, they had a big party and they were dancing. And there's there's video of that, and it's really cute. Whole families and stuff. Mm-hmm. It was like a Hawaiian theme. It was really cute. So some people on the team, including Carl Sagan, thought that before they shut the cameras down, because it got to be too dark as they send it off into interstellar space, they're going to get that data from different like different probes and things on Voyager. So they thought that some people on the team thought that they should have Voyager just look back on the solar system, mm-hmm. just like turn around and be like, snap, 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 and then shut off the cameras and be like, bye, I'm off. So apparently there was opposition to this. And the reason being was just like, well, what's the point? Like, they're just going to be little points of light that you can barely see. Um, but Sagan went all the way to the top at NASA to make sure that it got done. <laughs> so on Valentine's Day of 1990, Candy, she was the first one to look at what they called the family pictures mm-hmm. because it was a solar system. 
And she said, I already, I knew where all the blemishes were. So I went blemish, blemish, blemish. And she was like, but she was like, where's the earth? I can't find the earth. Because she, she was in charge of making sure that they got the images. Uh-huh. And then she realized that there were a lot of streaks of light in the image. And then she discovered that earth was sitting in one of those little rays of light. Oh. And it looked like a speck of dust. And it was earth in a sunbeam. And she said it was so small, it was less than a pixel. Uh, oh, man. So that's the big, that is the, the basis for the pale blue dot photo. That's what it's okay. called. And Carl Sagan wrote this very beautiful thing about it. He wrote that, you know, everyone you've ever loved, everyone you've ever known, everyone you've ever seen, everything you've ever known is on that tiny speck of light. And if this is like a so tiny and a vast ocean of blackness and unknown, shouldn't we be taking care of each other? And shouldn't we be taking care of that, that planet? Isn't that sweet? And then you popped a Xanax. (laughs) And I popped a Xanax. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I lost. Yeah, it's at what and they show the video of him like presenting it and he's like and this image and there's like a really long pause mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh my god, he, he can't find it." <laughs> you could tell he was like I just saw it. I just saw it. Where is it? And he was like, "And Earth in a sunbeam." And everyone was like, "Yay, clap 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 clap." Um so the Voyagers still communicate with Earth every single day. They're constantly putting new um, satellites and and not satellites, antennas out Mm -hmm. to like capture because it keeps going farther and farther out. Um, So Voyager 1 is heading toward the heliopause. So quick explanation. We live in a bubble and the bubble is the heliosphere. Mm -hmm. So that is the solar system where the solar winds push out. So the sun solar winds push out to the edges of the solar system. And the heliopause is the edge of that bubble where interstellar material is moving toward the sun. So the heliopause is that, and they call it a like a termination point where these two things come at each other and then it's like um, a li- basically a line. Wow, okay. So the idea... Um, a good example of this is when you turn on a sink mm-hmm. and the water is pouring from the faucet and it hits the basin and you get that like circular point where the water's okay. hitting. But when the sink fills up with water, the flow outside of that little circle is slower than it is moving out. Right. So that that line around it is basically what the heliosphere is. So they want to know, Voyager's like rocking and rolling, heading out. Like, where does our bubble end? Where does the mm-hmm. heliosphere end? Because this was all theory. Yeah. They're like, I'm sure the solar winds push back against another something, something that's yeah. coming at us because the universe is always expanding. So it took years. It's going on. It's through the 80s, through the 90s. They're like, what the hell's going on? Through the 2000s, still haven't reached the heliopause. Finally, in August of 2012, Voyager 1 popped out of the bubble. And now it's an interstellar space. Wow. And Carolyn Porco, who has some of like the best like thoughts about the Voyager program, she said, you know, she's like, it's almost Homeric. Like we're all putting our Uh oars into the, into this ocean of space and we're like moving on to the next thing. She said, it's like knocking on eternity's door. Like we're now out into the vast unknown. So it's, it's continuing to go and gather as much information as possible. But eventually, all the systems are going to fail. It's going to yeah. get too far out. 
So when that happens and everything is turned off, the golden record serves its primary purpose, which is the message in the bottle. Um, And there's no proof that there's anything it's going to encounter ever again, because there's so much room out there that statistically it is never going to encounter another thing. Like not just a planet, not another star, not an asteroid, not anything, because it's so vast. I know. My brain is melting right now. And then the, one of the last things that they say is, Voyager will not only outlive us, but it'll outlive our star. And so this is like the only thing le- that we are going to have out there for like the rest of time. Wow. I know. So I highly recommend this documentary. <laughs> it's going to make you really freak out. I mean, Steve loved it. Yeah. Um. He was just like, I just love space so much, babe. Um, and I was like, I hate space. Don't ever get me out of there. It's called The Farthest Voyager in Space. It's through PBS. It's on Netflix. It's an hour and a half. The music is great. It's so evocative. You feel like when they show the pictures, it's in time to the music. And it's like, I don't know. It's like really energizing. It's great. So Voyager 1 is out in the out in space. Yes. And where did Voyager 2 go? Voyager 2 is behind is coming is up behind heading it. that way. Yeah, heading okay. that way. So Voyager 1 again on a faster trajectory. Okay. And but they're still they're both still out there. They're both still doing just fine. Um sending weak signals back. Yeah, and being like, "I'm okay. I don't see anything yet." <laughs> so, I mean, they're only I guess they're only measuring really like the radiation it's encountering and that's how they knew it popped out of the bubble. Oh, wow. Cuz like the levels went kind of nuts mm-hmm. and then Nothing. Something changed. Yeah. And they're like, oh my God, it's an interstellar space. It's, oh my God, it's so crazy. <laughs> it's so crazy. Wow. So, my quiz. Okay. Let's get back to Earth. Whew. All right, please. Now we're on terra firma. My quiz is on gold records, a quiz on the Record Industry Association of America certification. <laughs> okay, here we go. Question number one. Presently, an RIAA-certified gold means the album sold 500,000 units. Platinum means it sold 1 million units. And the coveted diamond is for 10 million-plus units. What is the certification between platinum and diamond? Question number two. Kenny G is arguably one of the best-selling jazz musicians of all time. It is and is especially popular in China. What is Kenny G's legal name? Question number three. I was surprised by this, but you might not be. Which artist had the most album certifications of all time with 21 gold, 36 platinum, and a whopping seven diamond albums? Question number four. True or false, Elvis Presley had a twin brother named Jesse. Question number five. This divisive band went 29 times platinum with their greatest hits album, 30 years after the album was released. Name that band. Question number six. Which singer-songwriter still holds the record for most consecutive weeks at number one by a female solo artist with her 1971 album that was definitely everyone's mom's high school soundtrack? Question number seven. Not surprisingly, the Beatles are the highest-selling band of all time, but how long were they together? Question number eight. 
One of the most popular and highest selling female singers in the 1970s, Linda Ronstadt played the character of Mabel Stanley in both a Broadway and TV movie version of what Gilbert and Sullivan musical? Question number nine. Along with numerous other accolades, Whitney Houston was named the most awarded female act of all time in 2009 by Guinness World Records and had some famous family members as well. What gospel legend is her first cousin? And finally, question number 10. Did Meatloaf ever reveal what the that was in I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that? I'll give you a minute to think about it and we'll be back with answers. All right, here we go. Oh boy, I am not the music person in our in our trivia team. It's okay. So. It's okay. We'll get there. Yeah. Okay. Question number one. Presently, an RIAA certified gold means the album sold 500,000 plus units. Platinum means it sold one million units, and the coveted diamond is for ten million. What is the certification between platinum and diamond? Um, pearl. <laughs> Um, it's kind of a trick question because it's multi-platinum. Oh. So when you say something like, this album went platinum twice, or this okay. it went platinum three times, um, it's multi-platinum. So that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the unit between 1 million and 10 million. Okay. So, okay, question number two. Kenny G is arguably one of the best-selling, quote-unquote, jazz musicians of all time and is especially popular in China. What is Kenny G's legal name? It's a really long last name, isn't it? It is not, no? actually. Okay, then I don't know. His name is Kenneth Gorlick. Oh. Yeah. Canadian. He's perfectly fine. <laughs> I always think of like the... Like you get it in uh, a lot of um, like I like restaurants. You hear a lot of Kenny G in uh, restaurants, I feel. But anyway. Elevators. Elevators, for sure. Hold music. <laughs> yes, hold music. Um, okay, question number three. I was surprised by this, but you might not be. Which artist has the most album certifications of all time with 21 gold, 36 platinum, and a whopping seven diamond albums? 21 gold albums. Yeah. 36 platinum, seven diamond. Is it Reba McIntyre? No, but you're very close. It's <laughs> Garth Brooks. Oh, okay. I don't, why did I think it was, you were asking me for a woman? I don't know. I think I asked you, thought you were asking me for a woman. Sorry. Yeah, Garth Brooks. Okay. Not Chris Gaines. Garth yeah. Brooks. Yeah. <laughs> okay, question number four. True or false, Elvis Presley had a twin brother named Jesse. True. Yes. He was born 35 minutes before Elvis and was stillborn. And apparently the king claimed he felt his brother's presence throughout his life and felt guilt for being the surviving twin. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty dark. Okay, 
Question number five. This divisive band went 29 times platinum with their greatest hits album 30 years after the album was released. Name that band. I don't know. It's the Eagles. Okay. Uh, The album was called Their Greatest Hits 1971 to 1975. And it went 29 times platinum in 1995. Because it's cumulative. Okay. So you said Diamond is the highest. Yes. How could you be 25 times platinum? platinum why wouldn't you just be diamond at that i point? do not know okay i think it's uh i think it's like 10 million like you so 29 times platinum maybe it's like units per year i have no idea <laughs> so weird. Yeah, i know it's, weird. it's it doesn't make any sense <laughs> <laughs> if you know anything about the yeah. riaa or a member of the riaa please let us know <laughs> um okay question number six which singer songwriter still holds the record for most consecutive weeks at number one by a female solo artist with her 1971 album that was definitely everyone's mom's high school sc- soundtrack it was my mom's oh i don't know carol king's tapestry okay yeah she had like 18 singles that came out of it or something mm-hmm. like that and there's a sort of a tv movie or something about how she was just a singer songwriter for years and years and years and then someone was like you know what you should record your own album and she was like i think i will okay. and then i mean there's a broadway musical about her now yes you're right tapestry the carol king story is that what it's called yeah see what do i <laughs> how did i not know these things i'm sorry mom she's ashamed of me now okay question number seven not surprisingly the beatles are the highest selling band of all time but how long were they together uh eight years you're close it was 10 years okay. 1960 to 1970 mm-hmm. okay question number eight one of the most popular and highest selling female singers of the 1970s linda ronstadt played the character of mabel stanley in both the broadway and tv movie version of what gilbert and sullivan musical uh pirates of penzance it is pirates of penzance uh she it's was the nominated only gilbert and sullivan <laughs> musical I it's the one with the uh, i am a very uh, modern, yeah, major, modern general. major general yeah uh, she was nominated for a Tony and an Emmy for that. Uh, those both of those, although she did not win. And uh, I have a distinct memory of watching the TV movie version of Pirates of Penzance with a couple of girls that I was friends with in high school, who are both musical buffs, and I am not <laughs> a musical buff. I know a lot about. I know a lot of like musicals, musicals, surprisingly. Yeah, you but don't they like were like people sing at you. I remember they were like obsessed with the the male main male character edward or something i don't know i didn't and they were like oh he's so hot it's so hot it's like this is weird also this is long and like people are singing too much and the it was just it's not good i don't like it sorry guys anyway (laughs) we just lost the musical theater i know they're like that's it click off Okay, question number nine. Along with numerous other accolades, Whitney Houston was named the most awarded female act of all time in 2009 by Guinness and had some famous family members as well. What gospel legend is her first cousin? Dionne Warwick. It is Dionne Warwick. Warwick. Good job, Jewel. The psych. She was a psychic. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Didn't she have that loosely? Psychic. Psychic, yeah, quote unquote. Huh, I forgot all about that. All right, question number 10. Did Meatloaf ever reveal what the that was in I'd Do Anything for Love, but I won't do that? I want to say, no, he didn't in the song, but maybe someday in an interview, he might be uh, alluded to something. Here's the thing. He did in the song. Okay, so this is how it's broken down. 
Each verse mentions two things that the man would do for love, followed by one thing that he will not do. Mm -hmm. So the title phrase repetition reasserts that he won't do that. And each mention of that is a reference to the particular promise that he made earlier in the same verse. So, for example, the four things that he said he would never do are, one, forget the way you feel right now. Two, forgive myself if we don't go all the way tonight. Three, do it better than I do it with you. And four, stop dreaming of you every night of my life. And in his 1998 VH1 Storyteller special, Meatloaf even explained it on stage mm. using a blackboard and a stick. Oh, and was wow. like singing it and was like, I won't do that. Forget the way you feel tonight. <laughs> like he went through it That's all. That's funny. I guess I was thinking it was one thing he wouldn't do. Yeah. Well, uh, actually, in <laughs> there's a lot of breakdown in the Wikipedia page. Also, is this like a nine minute song? It is like a the rest of his 17 minute song. Okay. I yeah. listened to the entirety of it after I wrote this question. Uh-huh. I was like, you know what? This is a really good song. And I know every word. <laughs> wow. I know every word. I when we were like studying uh, for Geek Bowl and I was listening to all the music channels on XM Radio, um, I feel like I put on Paradise by the Dashboard Light Ugh. and drove like 28 miles and yep. the song was still playing. I was like, all right. That's enough. Well, Paradise by the Dashboard Light has like, I think, <laughs> two and a half innings of color commentary <laughs> of a baseball game. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And Meatloaf was a big... Like, he's a musical guy. Like, he started off, I think his debut was on Broadway in Hair, mm. I think. So, he's a theatrical person. Mr. I mean, Meatloaf. Mr. Is, Sir yeah. Meatloaf, mm-hmm. yes. Um, but, man, is I Would Do Anything for Love a great song. I mean, there were several times in the office that I would put it on and all the interns and be like, here we go. <laughs> we're doing this, guys. Sing it at the top of my lungs. It's amazing I still have a job. Anyway... <laughs> There you go. (laughs) Wow. That's my quiz on gold records. And I hope you all are really feeling your mortality today. (laughs) Listening to me talk about space. And how we're just specks in the grand ocean of the universe. But anyway, thanks for listening. Oh, Lauren. Yes, Julia. I have a piece of listener submitted trivia. (gasps) Do you tell us all about it? Okay. Are you ready? This is my favorite fact that I learned about Stephen Hawking. So he died on Pi Day this year. Um, And everyone was sad and everyone was sharing all these stories about Stephen Hawking. Mm -hmm. But my favorite story about Stephen Hawking is in 2009, he threw a party and no one attended. So there was a film of this event. He um, he had all these trays of canapes. There were flutes filled with Krug champagne. There were balloons everywhere and a giant banner displaying the words, welcome time travelers. Oh, my gosh. So what Hawking did was he held this party as an experiment on the possibility of time travel. Um, he only sent invitations out after the party had actually occurred. Oh, my gosh. So it's so great so funny (laughs) so yeah obviously no one showed up yeah um he was so excited but nobody showed up um the party if you know if we ever do get to do time travel the party is on june 28th 2009 and the coordinates are out there and on invitation so if um if anybody ever does get to get to travel back in time and go to stephen hawking's time traveler party that would be that would be amazing. That would be cool. But that's like freak. That's like messing yeah. with my mind too. Because uh-huh. like no one showed up then, but will anyone show up in the? That's what I was thinking. Past? Would it be like 
would I go to bed and then wake up the next day and go read an article about, oh, yeah, by the way, Stephen Hawking had a party in 2009 and one person showed up. Like, would I not, would I no longer have a memory of reading this article that zero people showed up? Yeah, because the timeline's all messed up, right? So you, <laughs> you in that timeline, oh my gosh. <laughs> this is too much for my uh, little mind. I mean, we're misinformation, but there's a limit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Anyway. So anyway, well, that's thank you. My favorite, my favorite story, Beth. No, that's Hawking. really good. That's a that's funny and uh, very on brand for Mr. Hawking, Doctor Hawking. So, but anyway, um, oh, also, just an FYI to all of our listeners, we have a PayPal account. So, if we will post it on our website, and we will post it on our Twitter, and we will post it on our Facebook page, and if you like us. And you're like, you know what? I want to I wanna commodify my d- love of these girls with cash, and with throw American them a dollars. Dollar. Yeah. We'll take a buck. Yeah. We're not proud. <laughs> Again, it'll, my it'll signature. just help with our, with our hosting fees yep. and our um, any maybe equipment upgrades. And yes. The possibility of having like other guests in our very fancy studio. Yeah. Our incredibly <laughs> fancy studio that we have here. Um, I mean, not that we're going to be able to pay people, but maybe we can get them a couple of things of seltzer and some crackers and like a mid mid style cheese. <laughs> a nice mid-range brie yes. if you will something creamy perfectly serviceable so um thanks to everyone who listens i yes. mean we well you're going to keep putting this out regardless yeah. but um if you'd like to help us out that would be uh apps totally appreciated so yeah, definitely um and if you want to listen to more of us we mm. are on itunes google play stitcher or you can get us from our RSS feed from anywhere you uh, listen to podcasts. Uh, you can email us, missinfopod at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, www.missinfopod.com. <laughs> we're not well, .gov my yet. Brain just, yeah. uh, our Twitter is at missinfopod, and our Facebook page is misinformation, a trivia podcast. And that's... That's what we got, you guys. So thanks for listening. And uh, we will catch you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye.